welcome to the HMP Governance Lab podcast. I'm Holly Jarman and I'm a professor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and I'm here with Scott Greer and today we're going to talk about state and local government. So Scott, tell me, why should we bother paying attention to politics at state and local level? There's so much exciting stuff going on at the federal level in the US. What's the point? Sewer linings, bike lanes, pedestrian curb cuts, school financing. What could be better? Seriously, there's a number of reasons that we care about state and local government in general and in health. One is that it's close to people's lives. The competence of state and local governments and the decisions they make have a lot of influence. Potholes, homelessness, bus services, police oversight, playgrounds, not just the quality of the playground and the safety of the playground, but the number of them and their accessibility. Green spaces. Do you plant trees for the convenience of pedestrians, or do you plant trees in order to reduce the effect on drivers if they lose control of their car? These are overwhelmingly state and local government decisions, and they matter to a lot of people. If you go into state and local government, or you work with them, you'll see, once you look for it, endless opportunities to affect health. Building bike lanes into a network so that more people can commute in a safe and green and non-congesting way. Sprawl, on the other hand, build six-lane roads to the middle of nowhere and install a lot of expensive infrastructure in order to attract a Taco Bell. That's a much more common American approach. All sorts of built environment questions. Where are the bike racks? Where are the trees, as I mentioned? How do you space your investments out in order to ensure accessibility and ADA compliance? That's without even mentioning, of course, schools, which are an enormous part of society and health and people's welfare, and all the stuff that's a little bit less glamorous, like relining sewers in order to have a viable water and sewer system, because if there's anything we know matters in public health, it's clean drinking water. And if we think that's a Victorian problem, let us reconsider Flint. Furthermore, a lot of America is state and local governments. The United States has about 90,000 governments. As a country, Americans are deeply in love with government. They just don't want it to be very good or very big. They vary from mosquito-controlled districts with a couple of people through to L.A. County, which would be a reasonably sized country on its own. As a consequence, it's where most politics and most politicians are. It's very common that people have political careers which begin with local government and gradually work their way up to something else. It's not uncommon for the school of local government to start with an advisory committee in the city, city council seat, perhaps mayor, state legislator, house of representatives, governor, the world's your oyster. So among these 90,000 governments, um, where should we start? Maybe we should start with states. Let's start with the states, because it's called the United States of America for a reason. The states got together and created the federal government that we all know and love, but they also create every other government, be it Los Angeles County or that mosquito control district. Local governments are in law the quote-unquote creatures of state governments. You might feel like the city of Ann Arbor or the city of New York has an independent soul and politics and should have its own government, but actually what they are is delegated agencies of the state government that have to raise their own taxes and hold their own election, but they can be abolished at the stroke of a pen. In fact, you occasionally hear the phrase home rule, and what home rule means is that there's been a broad delegation of authority, because in some states, local governments can only do things that the states effectively authorize them to do. So this means that 
states have a lot of power over local governments. Straight up preemption. In Michigan, for example, Ann Arbor and a couple of other similar places wanted to pass a five-cent tax on plastic bags. The Retailers Federation wasn't interested in that because they don't like local variation. So they got the state legislature in Lansing under Governor Snyder to pass a law preventing any local government taxing plastic bags. A more amusing one is in Albany, New York, a town I happen to like, but it gets a lot of stick, is located the state capital. And state legislators like to park for free, and their staffs like to park for free in the residential areas around the state capitol buildings. So, in New York law, the city of Albany does not have the authority to charge for parking or create a parking permit system in the area that is attractive if you, to park in if you're a state legislator or a staffer. Straight up, Albany is a delegate of the state of New York, and the state of New York does not choose to delegate the rights to set parking permits or install parking meters close to the capital. You can go a little bit more strongly. You have emergency management, where under Michigan law, the governor can essentially determine that a local government jurisdiction is insolvent and put it in a form of bankruptcy where the state will take over, appoint an emergency manager with an enormous amount of ability to abrogate contracts. Detroit, Detroit Schools, Benton Harbor, notoriously Flint. In other words, sure, there's local self-government in the sense that under emergency manager rule, you can vote for a city council in Benton Harbor, but the person running the place was no more accountable to that council than to pre-existing union contracts. And finally, there are a few cases of abolition. Nowhere near enough, but, for example, there was a town that was essentially nothing but one family speed trap on the road between Tallahassee and Gainesville in Florida, and it got so egregious and so noticeable to people going back and forth between the two, who include folks attending college football and state legislators, that they actually went through the trouble of passing specific legislation to abolish it. Now, thinking about states, these are obvious things, but it's worth reminding of. Some of them are really big. California is usually hovering around the world's 10th largest economy. Even Michigan and North Carolina, which you don't think of as giant hulking units of political power, are about the same population as Sweden. That is something that my relatives need to hear because I cannot convince them that they um, can't come here and drive very quickly from Michigan to California, for example. Um, some of my relatives who will remain nameless planned a holiday and said, oh, we can go and visit Holly in Michigan and then we can, you know, pop over to the West Coast for the day, uh, which just goes to show they Europeans don't generally appreciate how large America is. London to Inverness, the northernmost city in the United Kingdom, is about 450 miles. If you drive from Monroe to Ironwood, it's a little bit under 900 miles and you're in one state the entire time. Right. Now, size can mean other things, right? We have a couple of states that are really minuscule, like Wyoming. It's titchy. 800,000 people live in North Dakota. 890,000 live in South Dakota. Impressive? Well, it's impressive in space, but 1.2 million people live in Oakland County, Michigan. So the Dakotas between them have about as many people as Oakland County plus Washtenaw County, and in return they have two governors, four senators, and two House members. Now, what does these different state political systems do? We'll talk about how they do it in a second, but what do they do? A big, big, big issue is regulations. For example, professional scope of practice. 
There's a lot of homogeneity in some professions, but there's no homogeneity on the qualifications and training and scope of practice of a nurse practitioner or a midwife or a physiotherapist from state to state. There's often not much recognition of credentials. So if you train as a physiotherapist in Michigan, that doesn't necessarily mean you can go work as a physiotherapist in Indiana without possibly extensive retraining. There's also regulations and scope of practice rules that, shall we say, are useful for protecting the economic positions of incumbents. So in Indiana, you have to have a license to cut hair. They don't have a free market in haircutting in Indiana. And the people who decide whether you can have the license are a jury composed of the people who are already cutting hair in Indiana. In other words, they've created little legally backed oligopolies for haircutting. Now, as you all know, this means that people who live in Indiana are exceptionally beautiful compared to people who live in Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, or Illinois. And if you doubt me, then I believe you're questioning the professional licensure and credentialing system that ensures the high quality of haircutting in Indiana. That's a bit of a joke, but see how they've created a little distinctive sector so it costs a little bit more to get your hair cut in Indiana and there's a little bit less competition for Indiana haircutters and nobody notices. A lot of the big irritating government that people complain about is actually state and local government doing stuff like that. In healthcare, certificate of needs legislation, all payer rate setting, that's a bit of an antique curiosity, but it served Maryland well. Insurance markets not preempted by ERISA, essentially insurance markets for those of us who aren't insured by the Fortune 500, are regulated by state insurance commissioners in a variety of ways. Rhode Island, uh, which I'll want to remind you has more people in it than Wyoming, has an elected state health insurance commissioner, only one. Most of the time it's in the hands of state insurance commissioners and they're very strong and competent regulators. They regulate the quality of drinking water. They regulate the quality of your recreational marijuana. So state regulations are a big deal, and they produce this kind of boring but economically very important realm of deciding who exactly gets to ply a trade, be it cutting hair in Indiana, or running a daycare, or being a doctor. And the United States often doesn't have a free market in any of those positions, because if you want to move from one state to another as a nurse, you had better expect some level of retraining and requalifications. The next thing they do is implement policies. Medicaid, TANF, CHIP. A lot of the time what this means is the federal government sets up a conditional grant program. So for example, once a state agrees to participate in Medicaid, they have to abide by the rules of Medicaid. The implications of this was a big thing in NFIB versus Sibelius when Justice Roberts rewrote the Affordable Care Act in order to make participation in the expansion conditional. Previously, it had been written as a very pure conditional grant in which the Affordable Care Act said, if you're in Medicaid, you need to take on board these new rule changes. Conditional grants are a very big deal in the United States. If you address drug treatment issues in this way, you can have money. If you, famously, have your drinking age set at 21, then you can have access to federal co-financing for your roads. Now, states can, under some circumstances, apply for waivers. As legislation becomes increasingly gridlocked and contentious, we've seen more and more action moving to waivers, in particular Medicaid demonstration waivers. So, for example, states that want to in join the Medicaid expansion, get the money, get the coverage, keep their health care providers alive, but don't want to look like they're implementing democratic law, 
would go to the Obama administration and say, can we find a midway point so we can say we're doing our own Arkansas care instead of taking orders from Washington? Now that Trump has been in office, we've saw a wave of waivers from red states that involved basically coming up with the most conservative possible legal interpretations of what the Affordable Care Act meant or what Medicaid means, and then getting the administration to sign off on them as a way to undermine the ACA and create interesting, innovative precedents for rolling it back. Now, I always think that some conditional grants, waivers and the like are always so interesting because they tell you something about the nature of American federalism and the American political system, which is quite different from other countries. It's this very indirect way of trying to keep the states in line or trying to get the states to adopt particular goals. And I find it quite fascinating as a comparative politics person. A lot of the time, the way to think about American public policy is it's an axis between state and federal governments. The contract is basically the structure of the conditional grant, and the federal government sets rules that it thinks the states can and will implement, and then it's the state's job to do it, which can get really into a thicket of stuff if you're dealing with, for example, social services that have to be then implemented by local governments. Right. I think this is one of the reasons why American public policy is so complex is this interplay between federal and state level. So, But that's not all that states do. What else do states do? They also provide services. For example, universities, although by and large states don't fund their universities these days. We tend to say that American universities used to be public, then they became state-supported, and now they're state-owned. University of Michigan, for example, usually hovers in the very low double digits or high single digits for state support. And since 2010, most states have radically cut the amount of general financing going to universities. So if you're troubled by your tuition, you will notice it goes up in almost any given state by almost exactly the amount of money that state general funds appropriations to public universities go down. States do social policy. They directly run welfare programs, or they run them through local governments in counties, for example. Obviously, they build and own roads. They also do things that are a little bit, a little bit less obvious, but really important. For example, state public health departments tend to run the laboratories that are necessary to, I don't know, handle an emerging pandemic or monitor for little outbreaks of lesser things. Finally, States orchestrate the taxing and spending of everybody in that state. For example, Michigan sets a sales tax that funds local governments at the same rate everywhere to prevent local governments competing on sales taxes. It determines that the sales tax applies to gasoline. It also levies a gas tax additionally on gasoline in order to finance the roads. You put this together, what it means is that they can't raise Michigan gas taxes because Michigan gasoline is already expensive, but because a lot of that taxes is going to finance school districts and local governments and generally keep sales taxes down across the board, you can't get the sales tax taken off of gas like the other 49 states. Now, if you thought that sounded a little bit complex, feel free to rewind and listen to it on 0.5 speed and be very grateful. I'm not going to try to talk to you about the Headley Amendment in school financing, which is unbelievably intricate in Michigan and a lot of other states. Please don't. I'll get a real headache. Um, so let me see if I can recap. Correct me if I do this wrong. So states create all of the levels of government underneath them so they can really shape local government in lots of important ways. Um, don't forget some states are 
nearly as big or just as big as many other countries. So we're talking about significant spending and significant policy. Um, states regulate, states implement big programs, uh, states provide services, and states govern some aspects of financing like taxing and spending. All right, so that's the list of things that states can do. But then what about the limitations on states? What are some things that they can't do? I've been talking about how much control they have over money and how big they are, but they cannot finance a welfare state. They are what we call in the trade procyclical. A procyclical phenomenon is one that accentuates the business cycle. States have balanced budget amendments, and they have to compete with each other. This means that they aren't able, legally or as a question of economic competition in a highly nationalized economy, to spend a lot of money when times are bad, or necessarily raise taxes much when times are good. So states go up and down just like any other business. When the money's flowing and unemployment is low and people are going out and having a good time, state tax revenue goes up and we see building and we see new programs. However, when the economy goes south, unless they get assistance from the federal government, their revenues dry up just like anybody else's. So they, for example, cut back on construction work. This is procyclical because it deepens the recession, because the construction workers and companies that had been planning to work on a road suddenly get a note saying that the work won't be done after all because the state doesn't have the money. So states can't handle systems without federal support that would require them to spend more money when times are bad because, by design, their tax revenues go down right when there's a lot more people who could use their help. Yeah, this this drives me crazy as an avid Keynesian because I consider governments to I feel like governments should be counter cyclical, not necessarily pro cyclical. But um, it it makes American politics make more sense once you understand uh, the budgetary constraints on states. And if you want to hear a bit more about this, we do talk about this in our state budgeting podcast. We have a whole extra section on that for you. So go back and check that out. TLDR, it's nuts. We drive up the price of things like construction and create programs that we can't sustain at the top of the business cycle. And then we slash and burn at the bottom of the business cycle. And either way, we're doing it exactly wrong in terms of economic management. But it's quite foundational to the American political economy. So don't hold your breath on it changing. What are the other limitations on states then? States compete. They compete in a variety of ways. The most obvious one is they compete, for example, to attract people with low taxes. A big part of the reason people move to Arkansas or Florida when they get older is that they don't want to pay income taxes in those states. They compete to have a nice environment. So, for example, there's a lovely study that nasty polluting things or dangerous things like nuclear plants tend to be located on the far corner of the state where the prevailing winds mean that if anything goes bad, it will be blown out of town. So it's no accident that a lot of the foulest things in the biggest nuclear plant in the state of Michigan are located where anything they emit will be blown into Ohio. This is mainly a restriction on states because it restricts them from having a nice welfare state. It restricts them from being able to afford, for example, expansive health care payments. It's only limited to the extent that the state has something else going for it. The tri-state area of New York has New York City. New York City's not going anywhere. That's an enormous asset. San Francisco and the Bay Area are not going anywhere. That's an enormous asset. Mount Rainier's not going anywhere. Unfortunately, the rain's not going anywhere in Seattle either. If you're a state that has less clear-cut assets than 
you will often see policymakers trying very hard to compete essentially on low taxes and subsidies to businesses that they can attract, be that Mississippi competing with Alabama or Kansas competing with Nebraska. The result of this is they don't usually innovate that much. We love to talk about state innovation. It's a gigantic genre of American public yeah, policy. Hang on. What happened to all this about the state as the laboratories of democracy? Like that, That's a, an actual frequently quoted phrase uh, in political science. One, they don't want to raise taxes any more than their neighbors because they're competing. Two, they are relatively thin on expertise in policy design and they're getting thinner um, in part by design, things like state term limitations on their representatives. Three, a huge part of what they do and their money is conditional grants. And while Medicaid waivers are making Medicaid more diverse every year, it's still fundamentally Medicaid. You can't take the money and spend it on horseback riding lessons for every child. It's also getting more nationalized because the media is getting more nationalized. The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are edging out the Detroit News and the free press among one audience, and another audience has switched over to cable TV and social media entirely. And increasingly, state politics are nationalized so that the American Legislative Exchange Council, for example, writes model legislation that a bunch of states pass. Essentially, conservatives go to a conference. ALEC has seminars on why this and that piece of law is a good idea. And then they can take it home, and it's basically oven ready. They can just immediately introduce it. So political scientists actually use plagiarism software on states, and we can watch state laws travel. Now, this isn't entirely new. One of my all-time favorite bits of state law is something you find in the codes governing railways for about a dozen states still, which is that if two trains have tracks that cross without a switch, which is an unusual equation, each train must give way to the other train. In other words, if two trains meet, they will both sit there until the end of time. This was essentially a glitch written in one model code that never got rectified or even noticed as all these states passed it. So we essentially have a rule that if two trains meet at the train equivalent of an intersection, they both must wait there eternally. It's like the comedy routine of after you, no after you. So states are living in a highly nationalized political system. Public policy is highly nationalized. The people who run state programs are highly nationalized and moved around, move around. And they're operating within a political economy where keeping taxes low and the business environment predictable is usually more valued than coming up with some novel way to do things. Yeah, and you see this in a lot of public health regulations. They get kind of photocopied. The model law gets passed around. So it's not just people like Alec that are doing this. So in tobacco control, Tobacco 21 is a good example. Flavor bans are a good example. Um, and so things like that get adopted in one place or worked up at the national level and then diffused out, sometimes by the, the law sticking in a couple of places, cities, counties or states, and then other legislators in those places driven by national advocates working with local um, field teams on the ground, the, the advocacy machine kind of kicks off and they, they copy uh, the same idea for the law and um, try to get it introduced in as many places as possible. My favorite example of this transmission is actually local government. It's called the Boca Amendments. Wilmette, Illinois is a prosperous suburb of Chicago. Chicago does not historically have a problem of hurricanes. Nonetheless, for a few years, in Wilmette, Illinois, if you built or refurbished a house, you had to install what's called hurricane banding, 
which is basically steel ribbons like you'd wrap around a president whose purpose is to keep the roof from being blown off in a hurricane. This was because Wilmette had simply adopted what were known in the trade as the Boca Amendments after Boca Raton, Florida, which had rewritten part of its building code after getting hit by a hurricane in the early 1990s. It is good practice to have hurricane banding on houses in Florida. It was a bit ridiculous that they were briefly mandating them in Wilmette, Illinois. But that kind of thing happens. So we're still on our list of things that states can't do. Um, What else can't they do? They can't ensure nationwide consistency. We've seen this with lots of COVID-19. By definition, if you give mandates, responsibility for mandates on masking and other non-pharmaceutical interventions to states, you'll get variation. If you give implementation decisions to states, you'll get variation. My favorite example of this is if you compare what the experience of citizens in Kansas and Connecticut are. Kansas spends the least of its own resources on welfare for its citizens of any state. Connecticut, most years, spends the most. Now, in Kansas, what this means is that if you're between 18 and 65, and increasingly if you're under 18, you're stuffed. They are not going to look after you. You'd better make your own way on your own money. In Connecticut, life is significantly better. Connecticut raises the taxes and spends the money. By contrast, once you turn 65, you're in the federal welfare state. Medicare is Medicare. Social Security is Social Security. So what this means is that because the U.S. federal system gives a lot of latitude to states to invent their own policies for people between 18 and 65, and states are not really operating in the field of looking after people over 65, there's huge variation between Kansas and Connecticut until you turn 65. So what's the argument behind that? Why do we have so much leeway for states to adopt their own laws. I'm kind of thinking about discussions around uh, um, national health care reform again and what a healthcare system could look like. Um, won't federal politics kind of interfere with that vision? So when we looked at the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which was probably the last really big piece of domestic legislation before the United States descended into the pit of hell that it's been in since then, it was very noticeable that when they were working on the law, representatives and senators built in a sense of what their state would do. So, for example, Democrats from New York wanted to entrust lots of money to the states with not much oversight because they trusted the New York state government. By contrast, Democrats from, say, Texas or Louisiana were much more interested in federal consistency and oversight because they were pretty confident that they were going were not going to be running Louisiana or Texas anytime soon, and they would therefore prefer the policy outcomes from Washington than the policy outcomes from Austin or Baton Rouge. So to kind of summarize what we've learned so far, we have this national political system where there are lobbyists and advocates, there are political parties that are essentially national, um, and there are political careers uh, at federal level. Um, But then we've combined that in this system with highly competitive state governments, um, conditional grants that you mentioned, which are supposed to incentivize particular behavior and can be quite limiting. Um, And then we have the situation where we know less and less over time, I think, about how state politics works, uh, including we don't know a lot about our state legislatures or the executive in general. We kind of know about governors. So when Whitmer does something in Michigan... Um, we hear about it, and we hear about it at the moment in con- the connection with COVID, for example. 
but we don't hear a lot about what other parts of government at the state level do. And I, I say that as someone who follows politics a lot. I don't always know what the state legislature is doing unless I'm really concentrating on it. Name the legislative leaders in any given state, let alone name a few representatives, state senators, state Supreme Court justices, state superintendent of education, secretary of state, etc. This is also getting worse and worse because as the media nationalizes, fewer and fewer people work on state or local politics. And we're seeing the effects. There's always been a long-standing relationship that if you plot the distance between the state capital and the center of population of the state, you tend to find more corruption. So, for example, Alaska, Juneau is practically famously impossible to get to. You can't drive there from most of the state. Alaska is historically corrupt. By contrast, Austin in Texas is actually a pretty major metro area. Massachusetts is not very corrupt. It has less corruption over the last century and a half than New York State, because from the point of view of New York State, Albany's in the backwoods. So a lot of these states that have put their capital way off in the middle of nowhere, what they actually do is they put it in an area where there's no media oversight, there's very little ability to find the financing or the stability for watchdog groups, and as a result, you create an environment for corruption. Then you nationalize the media, so local and statewide media are practically extinct, and without the Chicago Sun-Times and the Chicago Tribune and the Peoria this and the Springfield that looking after Illinois politics, it did something that is really would be hard to believe, but it's true. Illinois politics got worse. I didn't think that was possible. Illinois is an amazing, amazing, amazing political system. Just don't touch it without a hazmat suit on. I can tell where you got your graduate education and where you were living at the time. <laughs> um, so if this is all about state governments we what about local governments then so should we be putting all our hopes on local governments i hope i haven't given you that idea so far right there's tens of thousands of them so the odds that you can find something interesting to do in some local government are definite now they divide into two main types of local government one is special purpose and one is general purpose special purpose is a sewer control board or a mosquito control board or the most common type of special purpose district a school board. There's also a separate category where it's actually some kind of an intergovernmental thing where, for example, a number of metropolitan areas will get together and share a transit system. So the PACE bus system in suburban Detroit is optional. Historically, they don't stop in Livonia and they go around Livonia because Livonia didn't want to buy a bus system that would give easy access to Livonia from other places. So they just didn't buy into the bus system and as a result, they don't stop there. Aren't some of these special purpose governments really important for public health? I'm thinking about your work with Zika and um, the mosquito control units. If you have a vector-borne illness, the mosquito control district is a very, very interesting topic for you. If you live in New Orleans, then you're very interested in the special and general purpose governments that keep you dry and above water. By and large, good political science and good political practice, though, is to have big general governments because simply put people know what city they're in they don't know what mosquito abatement district they're in and they can vote for a bunch of things at once that means that there's higher profile elections and there's better turnout so if you want a government that's free from accountability you will have something like an independent library or fire or parks board which has an election held when it's the only thing on the ballot on some day in april and there's like 25 people who vote 
one of the favorite tricks for independent fire districts is to actually have one balloting booth in the fire station, just to make a point about who's supposed to vote. Isn't that generally true of government, though, is if you want to um, decrease accountability, you specialize, so you carve off an agency. Uh, I'm thinking about the submerged state here and some of the ways in which we've seen social policy delivered by parts of government that are effectively invisible. Indeed, and a lot of local government is invisible, and who knows who's responsible for administering the beauty-inducing hair management regulatory framework of Indiana. The other point I want to make is a lot of these governments are small and amateur. Volunteer council with no pay, just a few employees. A large number of America's police departments have one officer. We have a lot of one-person police departments, and frequently that officer, if he or she is not on holiday, works Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be a great insight that that's not actually peak crime time. Now, there's also enormous variability. There's plenty of counties in the United States with fewer than 1,000 people. A lot of sort of everything from eastern Oregon through to Texas Panhandle, you'll find counties with a couple hundred people. By contrast, L.A. County is an immense and complex political environment bigger than some states. The result of this is that if you've seen one local government, you might know a lot about how local government works elsewhere in the state, but if you've seen one state's local government, you've seen one state's local government. Who does public health? Is it in the county? Is it in a special board? How accountable to the state is it? Do cities get to have their own public health? For example, within states, there's been a lot of carve-outs historically so that Detroit City would do things on its own and Wayne County would do things on its own that everywhere else in the state are done only by the county. So you have a Detroit public health department and a Wayne County public health department, whereas Kent County does public health for Kent County, including Grand Rapids. And that's a huge problem, actually, for public health um, advocates who are trying to get evidence-based policy in place in various places is like local variation uh, can cause huge implementation problems. And so a policy that looks good in one area just will fall apart or not work somewhere else. And that's a, a big issue. It's actually a big issue in public policy research because we don't even have like a directory of American governments that we can refer to to say um, exactly what are the features of each type of government and how are they how do they vary. The Census Bureau literally runs a census, a questionnaire. That's the best we've got. So then what can local governments do? Here's your short version. They can do what state law permits. Albany can't put up a parking scheme within walking distance of the New York State Capitol. Ann Arbor can't put a bag tax on plastic bags. They do what they can afford. And if they depend on sales taxes and their businesses are dying, then they can't afford much. Ann Arbor frequently and Washington County frequently vote to tax themselves to have nicer public services than the rest of the state and regard it as a good investment. People don't have to waste their money getting new rims all the time, and you might even say that makes Ann Arbor a nicer place to live than adjoining counties. They do what states mandate them to do. States tell counties that they have to have public health departments. It's not negotiable. States might or might not give them any money to run that county public health department. They do what federal grants permit above that. So now that you have a county public health department, you can apply for CDC or other funding to do bioterrorism or epidemiology or who knows what. So you have to be good at looking for grants and support. 
this absolutely structures transportation and infrastructure investment. The federal government will give you capital, but not running expenditure. They'll buy your bus, but they won't pay for the driver of the gas. <clears throat> Zoning is a very big deal in local government, and that interlocks with the provision of public goods. So how many American cities have you seen where there's a whole lot of apartment complexes on the edge of town run by a couple of major landlords with practically no municipal services, no sidewalks, no shade trees, by really big roads that are run by the state and serve mainly for the commuters, and then have a lovely little downtown ringed by single-family, well-kept houses, which obviously gets all the investment. That's the interaction of zoning, what can be built where, with the provision of public goods such as shade trees or bus services or even well-repaired sewers. I think I'm starting to touch on, of course, the really big problem of local government in the United States. The United States is a very mobile society, and it's a heavily residentially segregated society, and by some indicators, residential segregation in the U.S. is actually increasing in most of the country. So public goods vary by where you live. Americans essentially ration education and therefore life chances by house price. If you live in a good school district, you pay more for the house, you pay more rent, it's harder to rent an apartment because they wouldn't let anybody build an apartment building in a good district, quite likely. And that influences your life chances going forward. We all know this. Furthermore, a lot of cases, there's just a low tax base. There's towns that have sales tax on a gas station. There's towns that have property taxes, but the houses are so cheap and the market is so illiquid that a lot of the house transactions are cash. Very few residential mortgages get written in Detroit. They have a lot of incentive to compete, which means incentive to cut back on expenditures and stuff if you're a declining town, and more poisonously, incentive to become predatory. Start financing your police force with speeding tickets and car stops and court fees and asset seizures where they say your car was involved in drugs, so we'll take your car. This is how you get the political economy of a place like Ferguson, Missouri, where the police are essentially self-financing by taking money from people in a variety of fines and fees and car stops and asset seizures. And then we know what the public health consequences are. This is not just about money or a questionable funding model. It's directly putting the police into situations when they're, they're going to be confronting people and doing things that are pretty unfair um, and potentially arbitrary. And we saw an enormous spike in drug-based asset seizures among American police departments by about June of 2020. They could see their revenue cratering, and they became extremely aggressive about trying to find excuses to take people's stuff. This is what we call a predatory city. And the combination of American laws that permit it with American municipal governments that don't see themselves as having any other options produces this really toxic behavior pattern, which unsurprisingly gives rise to a lot of I'll delicately put it as problems in police community relations. Well, this is an important question, though, because if we want to defund the police, what happens to their other sources of revenue? If we were to, in fact, move money, move government money away from the police force to other um, sectors, which I think would be in, is a very good thing in theory, would that cause um, more of this type of behavior as the police force is trying to recoup that money? If you back off on asset seizures, back off on qualified liability, which means that police officers are more likely to be held personally liable for what they do, and take settlements with people who have had successful complaints against the police department out of the police department budget, 
you would radically change the financial basis of American policing in a way that would make it much better, including much more supportive of good officers who are doing things we actually want to see. And you would eliminate many of these incentives to finance an increasingly aggressive police department by dangerous encounters with otherwise law-abiding civilians. What are the other problems here? Well, they can occasionally go bankrupt. This basically means that some boomtown hired a bunch of teachers and a bunch of police. They retired after 30 years. 30 years is also when the houses all need rebuilding and are out of fashion. 30 years is when the roads definitively fall apart. And at that 30-year point, a lot of people say, actually, I don't want to live there. So then you get more vacancies in the business area, more multifamily housing. And at the same time, more and more money is being spent on minimal maintenance and pensions. That's how little American suburbs and towns die. Occasionally, they go bankrupt or go into emergency management. It's very rare. It's intensely political. And while it might solve accounting problems, Flint is now financially healthy. I can't think of any other index on which Flint is healthy. Detroit, Um, in large part, is effectively privatized. Yeah, I was going to mention, we experienced this in Flint, we experienced this in Detroit, but the emergency management process was very damaging. Um, You know, this is something that public health people should, or people who uh, care about population health should know about, because because of the ways in which the emergency management process and the financial incentives played into state politics as well as um, then the obviously the health crisis. Like the two things were interconnected in some important ways, weren't they? Yeah, and if you go down the road to Detroit, you find a city within a city anchored by public institutions such as Wayne State and the downtown with excellent police forces driving around in cars donated by one of the handful of billionaires who basically own the land, curate the businesses. And on one hand, they've revitalized Detroit, but on the other hand... Most of the people living in Detroit, most of the physical space of the city of Detroit, and most of the government of Detroit is shut out and effectively irrelevant. It's very much a two-edged sword. Now, Mike Duggan was a key player in that, running the Detroit Medical Center, and then he got elected mayor of Detroit. So there's clear political support for it, but there's also a cost if the only way you can get ambulances and police cars is donations from local billionaires with strong real estate interests in the center city. So what about Flint? So Flint is obviously a public health horror story of recent vintage, but it's grounded in some much deeper and more structural things about how American cities and local governments rise and fall, how they're served and ill-served by their state governments, and how they serve and ill-serve their citizens. Flint is a relatively new town. It was basically created by General Motors. It was created because if you're going to be bashing a lot of metal— It's attractive to have a big manufacturing facility located at the confluence of rivers that let you cheaply bring iron ore from the Upper Peninsula in Minnesota on ferries, and also train tracks that get you the coal coming in from Pennsylvania. That was the basis of Flint's initial economic development. So big source of good, steady union jobs bringing cars off the line in Flint. It was essentially a one-industry town where its higher education at the time was General Motors-affiliated things, now Kettering. And basically, the best jobs in town were UAW jobs at GM. The second best jobs in town were suppliers to General Motors, and everyone knew the town depended on them. This meant that when General Motors and the American automobile industry hit the skids starting in the 1970s, 
skids that in terms of employment they've never actually really pulled out of, Flint didn't have a lot else going for it, and it began to fall apart quickly. And remember what I said about these sort of 30-year periods. If you've had declining tax revenue for 30 years, you've probably had deferred maintenance for 30 years. You probably have people taking retirement while the retiring is good and building up the pensions liability. You've had inability to invest in new things. And you've had increasingly fierce competition for public sector jobs, which as UAW jobs vanish, things like jobs in the police or the schools become more and more attractive as the principal route to a reasonable middle-class life. So Flint was in a deep structural decline, primarily because the city of Flint depended on the tax revenues and the jobs from one company, General Motors, which even if it had been doing well, had no special loyalty to the city of Flint. Now, this process went on and on until the state of Michigan went into essentially a recession with the end of the dot-com boom, which had, among other things, fueled a gigantic boom in sport utility vehicles, although they look really tiny and cute next to the ones we're driving around in now. And Michigan didn't really come out of it before the 2008 financial crisis hit, which meant that Michigan basically had about a 15-year-long recession. Rick Snyder, an Ann Arborite, um, based proudly in Ann Arbor, lived off of Main Street, came in as governor in the 2010 Republican wave with a Republican legislature that he overtly disliked but was able to work with. And his goal was, by his lights, to improve financial stability in the state of Michigan. This meant, among other things, principally the emergency manager law. So a determination was made that Flint and Detroit and the Detroit Public Schools and Benton Harbor and, in general, the towns in which about half of the black population of Michigan lived were financially non-viable. They were given emergency managers. The elected boards were free to do what they liked. They didn't run the thing. Now, people who are politically capable of being chosen, I didn't say they're politically capable of doing it, I said they're politically capable of being chosen to be emergency managers are few and far between. So the guy who was emergency manager of Flint was also the emergency manager of the Detroit Public Schools, Jones Day lawyer, I believe. He came in and he looked at the budget. Now, Flint had been buying Detroit water. This was reasonably expensive. He decided to enter a new compact to buy water from a new and more local supplier. But in the meantime, he decided that it would save money by ceasing the contract with Detroit that had served Flint well. Detroit Water District is good water. And instead, using old technology and old equipment that had been abandoned for decades, basically, to pull water from the Flint River. Here's the problem. The Flint River runs through a lot of very old industries and has a lot of stuff in it. So in addition to being a different river, it also had a lot of chemicals in it that hadn't really been thought through. Then, of course, an emergency manager's goal is to balance the books. So he saved money by not testing it extensively, and then he saved some more money by not putting in preventative treatments. The amount of money saved was trivial. But the point of the emergency manager is not to make good long-run calculations. It's to save money, and save money he did. Well, if you've ever looked inside a cross-section of a water pipe that's been around for a while, you'll see that there's the pipe and then there's a bunch of stuff inside. And you instinctively think, uh, that encrustation is not good. But it's great if the pipes are lead. Because all that stuff, limescale and whatever that's built up, is protecting the water supply from the lead in the pipe. If you put the corrosive water of the Flint River into those pipes, 
that stuff comes off, which among other things give you discolored and stinky water because all the things that were in the pipes are now being flushed out into people's taps. And as the corrosion works its way through the material, it starts to corrode lead and get lead into the water supply. So famously, a whistleblower with a master's in public health from the Health Management and Policy Department of the University of Michigan um, did a little study of her patients. She's a pediatrician in Flint, and she found high and elevated rising lead levels among the children because they were drinking the water at the same time that people all over Flint noticed that there was something patently wrong with their water. It took ages to put two and two together, but finally it emerged that this process had been underway and essentially everybody in Flint was getting lead poisoning. A don't drink the water order was issued because there's no such thing as a safe level of lead in your water. They hastily switched back to Detroit water, but by now, even nice Detroit water flushed through pipes where the lead is once again in contact with the water is dangerous. So now a very expensive process is beginning of switching over to much more sensible copper pipe, pipe hookups in the houses in Flint, which might I point out, adding to the absurdity of this situation, there's now a rapidly increasing number of houses which have copper hookups that are brand new, and the house itself is becoming abandoned in the economic crises that keep on hitting Flint like uh, waves in a bad storm. In other words, the emergency manager was sent in to be Pennywise and came out as Pennywise and Pound Foolish. The emergency manager saved a trivial amount of money by not using the right chemicals, saved a trivial amount of money by not using Detroit water, saved a trivial amount of money by not testing, all of which were essentially in his understanding of his job description for which he was richly rewarded, and created an enormous public health crisis that is straight up a decision by the emergency manager doing the job that he was entrusted to by the state government. This brings together a number of things. First of all, Flint was in a no-win position. Once General Motors began to really shrink in Flint, there wasn't a clear plan B. Second, it built on itself. Because as Flint declined, the streets got worse, crime started to go up, things began to get shabbier, deferred maintenance, public and private all around you. Even doing things like putting the University of Michigan Flint in a downtown shopping mall that had failed didn't really solve the problem. A few marquee investments, such as UM Flint's building, which in previous years had been the marquee investment of a shopping mall, were not going to recover a city that was fundamentally and rapidly losing its economic base. Furthermore, as things deteriorated, people began to get increasingly interested in living somewhere else. You can live in Ann Arbor and drive to Flint. You can live in Lansing. You can live in a rural town. You can live in a suburb of Flint. Flint's competing for people with money and options against all of those places, and it had a steadily worse offering, which in turn meant that Flint became, like many American towns, more and more the place you lived if you didn't have any other options. This had knock-on effects. It became harder to recruit people to work in the schools. Those jobs became more and more attractive to some people and less and less attractive to others. Flint entered a death spiral. The roads were bad. The schools were deteriorating. The crime rate was going up. The closure rate on serious crimes was going down. Putting the University of Michigan into a downtown mall doesn't solve the problem. Not even a lovely farmer's market really solves the problem. Finally, Flint can't sit on its own two feet. The state took away the last of revenue sharing, as we call it, which is just straight-up money given to local governments to do their jobs, left Flint and the rest of the local governments of Michigan with the obligation to do their jobs, and if that raised taxes, fine, and if that meant they cut everything else, fine. Flint 
tipped over into bankruptcy, which was no surprise to anybody. And the emergency manager made these decisions, which saved money at the price of literally associating Flint with water that will poison you. And I think it's important at this point to note, this is a very disenfranchising process, right? The emergency manager uh, has been critiqued extensively for not consulting adequately with local people, uh, which is kind of by intent what an emergency manager is to, is supposed to do, like taking autonomy and power away from local government. And, um, you know, throughout the whole process against uh, a heavy, a long background of um, disenfranchisement of people in Flint, um, so add that all into the calculation, the uh, emergency management was very unresponsive. Um, the state departments, which are supposed to be uh, checking on on this situation, were very unresponsive. Uh, the federal government was not any help. Um, the EPA held some of its um, consultations and meetings over in Chicago instead of actually having it locally in Flint and communicating with people. So from beginning to end, um, there was a process of disempowering people who lived in Flint who were the people suffering from the problem. And um, so I think government and democracy really plays into this in a very important way. Essentially, nobody wanted to give Flint any help who had the capacity to help it. And then the final blow is they took away Flint's government's own capacity to even listen to or help its citizens. It was unresponsive by design. Now, the kicker is going to be that Rick Snyder would say, why did you do this? Why did you take away the shared funding that had been keeping Flint afloat when Flint's public services were obviously desperately needed? And he would point to the fact that the state of Michigan, as we've discussed, is a pro-cyclical entity which was not competitive on taxes with its neighbors. Ohio constantly is prowling Michigan looking for an opportunity to subsidize employers away. Ditto Indiana. This is life. Even Ontario tries. Furthermore, he'd say he's got to balance the budget in order to have a basis to do anything else. And giving money to local governments is something that the state of Michigan might like to do but simply could not afford. So Snyder would point to the structural situation he was in, in the face of people who said, you have explicitly put public sector accounting in a hierarchically superior position to the lives and democratic empowerment of the people of Flint. Yeah, you used to call him governor accountant, and I think that's a pretty good label for him. Um, yeah, he came under a lot of criticism for his role in this. And so I would agree, it's a matter of priorities. Were we actually prioritizing the health of people in Flint um, or their representation? No, we were prioritizing, the state government was prioritizing um, money and savings above all. That's what they wanted to demonstrate. And here's the kicker. We've had one governor in the state of Michigan's history who actually prioritized lead abatement. When Snyder came in, he created a dashboard of the things that he wanted to focus on and be judged by. Basic management technique. The guy had been a chief executive of a computer company, Gateway, the Cal ones. And he chose two main health indicators. One was obesity, and the other was lead poisoning. So it's a gigantic irony that the first governor in the state of Michigan to so overtly care about lead because it struck him as a really good investment to get the lead out turned out to be precisely the governor whose decision to prioritize fiscal stability and his lack of interest in local governments in areas that had the misfortune to be in decline 
led to him being indelibly associated with a pretty overt choice to take actions that led to a mass outbreak of lead poisoning. But I think public health also has to take a bit of blame here in terms of how they were defining lead as a risk, uh, as well as how it's defined in law. So um, we were defining consistently the, the risk as lead in lead paint. And we were completely ignoring this other um, potentially very dangerous source of lead poisoning. And so I think there were there's some culpability to be spread around a bit in terms of how the problem has was framed. I don't think you need to spend a lot of time uh, in public health to learn that lead in any form is not great. But the question is more, in public health policy and legislation, are you getting the signals that you care? And... Snyder was the first Republican government governor to show any interest in it. Before, it was like clockwork. Democrats put money into the budget for lead abatement, and Republicans took it out again on the very sensible grounds that lead abatement applies primarily to people living in buildings and on streets and using public services that predated essentially the 1970s. And let's be frank, that's not really the core Republican voting bloc. I also want to say the state and federal government had a role here in terms of the regulatory standards for for lead poisoning and lead content. Um, The EPA regulations just haven't been updated since the 70s. And so they're very out of step on lead and many other things um, with how much is dangerous and what should be the recommended level of, of dangerous substances in things like the water that we drink and the air that we breathe. And so that regulatory system is also a bit not fit for purpose. We have standards that are really not um, quite, they don't match the science anymore. And it's absolutely deliberate. That's a political choice. And I hope this class has given you some sense as to both why we make choices to, for example, have lead standards that are frankly unhealthy and what it might take to change it. So let's summarize a bit here at this point. So what should everyone take away from this podcast around um, what states do, what local governments do, and what are the consequences of us as health professionals going forward? Okay. First, the United States state and local government system provides stuff on the cheap. It creates constant incentive to try and come up with the cheapest and, we hope, most cost-effective and innovative ways to get stuff done. You don't want to hire EMTs if you can get by with volunteers. You don't want to have police departments depend on general revenue if they can make enough money in traffic stops and asset seizures. You don't want the courts to depend on general revenue if the courts can finance themselves with fees of various sorts. You don't want to have the DNR and parks depend on general revenue if you can get them to depend on some kind of a fee-based system. This is cheap, partly because that's a constant competitive incentive aimed at local governments, partly because they come up with tricks like the ones I listed, and partly because it produces a rough equilibrium in which Washtenaw County voters vote themselves better roads than people in the rest of the state get. They have more money, and they're going to have even more money because they voted themselves a smaller annual tax increase than it costs to buy a new pair of tires. In aggregate, however, it's got massive pockets of inefficiency rent-seeking regulations. There's nothing really different about the practice of nursing in Ohio and Michigan that means you have to effectively recredential if you move between the two states. 
It's got governments that are hidden from accountability, ranging from Alaska's legislature off in Juneau, where nobody can even get there, to the Wyoming legislature, which essentially writes the entire state budget and passes all of its laws in a couple of weeks every two years, as we discussed in the state politics. So there's a lot of opportunity for people to engage in small grifts, grants to little nonprofits that basically hire your cousin, decisions about licensing that benefit people who already have the liquor license, and so forth and so forth. And the collapse of local media means that increasingly, if there's any accountability, it's Nextdoor or Facebook, and heaven knows what's actually going on. Now, local government decisions tend to be heavily driven by real estate, both on the up real estate developers who are making deals like, if you permit me to build this, then I'll build you a new road out to it. And on the way down, because there's a lot of dark arts of exploitation of declining cities. So you saw a lot of money extracted from a Flint or a Detroit in their decades of decline. It just takes sort of special tricks and skills and political connections. Public goods provision is the main thing local government does, along with zoning. And they tie them together, so more public goods tend to go into areas that are zoned to, for example, not have large multifamily housing units. So if you want to park, you probably want to aim your car away from the largest concentrations of apartment buildings, even if the largest concentrations of apartment buildings will frequently be the ones that have a lot of kids who could do the park. Finally, a lot of them have this particular fairly toxic situation in which a very fragmented and often amateur city government faces off with often an ill-trained but very well-organized and politically coherent police department, which is how you see very large budget allocations being made to the police because the police union is simply one that your average local government mayor doesn't find they can tangle with. This is in a context where American smaller suburbs in particular are built to decline, bearing in mind that most things in the United States are built to last for 30 years, You build a brand new town, the developer builds you a road to the brand new houses, 30 years later those houses need new roofs, the appliances are kind of grotty, the basements are starting to get a bit damp, the road needs to be completely torn up and rebuilt, the police and teachers and fire who had been hired to staff the town have retired, their replacements need to be paid, the trucks need to be rehired, and now you need to pay the pensions for the people. And at the same time, you're offering in a highly competitive real estate market is now a place where if I buy the house, it's a 30-year-old house. It's not brand spanking new. It's not as attractive. Why do I want to pay steadily increasing taxes and put more money into that house in order to live in an essentially interchangeable suburb with the nicer, newer one five miles down the road? It's hard to escape this. A lot of Metro Detroit basically is a housing disassembly line where you build one new house in northern Macomb County, and you have to imagine every other house loses a little bit of value and a house in Detroit or downriver in Stir falls off into dereliction. That's the way to imagine it. It's not healthy. You get, I'll use Buffalo as an example. Buffalo has essentially the same population in the metro area as it did in 1915. It's three times larger, three times more sewer, three times more roads, three times more miles driven for the ambulances, three times more miles driven for the school buses. Buffalo hasn't thrived. It's just got three times geographically bigger and more segregated. The result is you get things like Ferguson, which is by no means the worst town in the unusually fragmented St. Louis metro area, where essentially it had a police force that depended on extracting money from minor infractions, and it had a declining infrastructure that wasted tons and tons of money on essentially cars, Taco Bells, drive through ATMs, and other very low-value things. 
this all responds to the incentives we've built since the 1950s, but it's really toxic, and police violence is only one of the problems that it creates. That said, even if local government drives you completely bananas, and it frequently can, there's still a lot of good things that get done, and there's still many people who can look at something that they caused to happen and be proud of it because of their engagement in local government, something that made health better, something that started up a partnership, putting in not just the bike lanes, but the network of bike lanes so people can ride safely, putting better playground equipment into the parks, all sorts of little built environment things, maybe even having specialist social welfare budgets if, for example, you have a homeless population to reach out to them. A lot of concrete things can be done at the local level, and that's particularly true now, because despite the polarization of American politics reaching down into the cities, and despite the extent to which local and state governments are trapped in webs not of their own making, there's still a lot of chances to get things done there that aren't necessarily possible in the hostile, toxic politics of Washington, D.C. This has been a podcast of the HMP Governance Lab. If you're interested in finding out more about our research, come and find us at hmpgovernancelab.org or follow us on Twitter at HMPGovLab. <laughs>